Lord, I thank you for um, who you are. And I thank you for your word. I thank you and I praise you that you reveal yourself to us in and through your word. Lord, I ask this morning that you would continue to do that. Lord, you would do it for your glory. You would do it for our good as you continue to transform us, conform us, Jesus, into your image. Lord, I now commit this time to you and ask that you would glorify yourself in it and through it. It's in your name, Jesus, I ask these things. Amen. If you would turn with me to um, Ruth chapter 2. If you've gotten an outline, you're probably looking. I didn't look at the outlines that he printed off this morning. I assume it's what I, what I had sent, but you're probably looking at your outline and, and seeing the title of the sermon is The Provident God of Ruth, and you're probably thinking, oh, no, not again. Um, we're still talking about providence and sovereignty, right? Um, and, and we are still talking about God's providence and God's sovereignty. Um, you know, we, we can't help but get around it or we can't help um, but deal with it um, as, as we address Ruth. Um, the entire book of, of Ruth is filled with God's sovereignty, filled with shining examples of God's, God's providence. And so as we continue to progress through this, this narrative, um, we're going to allow ourselves to be driven by it. And so we're going to continue this morning... Um, considering looking at the, the providence of God, again, the, the text demands it, and so we must, we must address it. As I was thinking about that, though, and I was, as I was preparing this week and, and last week and thinking about the providence of God, I, I found myself kind of saying the same thing, or saying to myself, uh, uh, again, right, I mean, we're still dealing with the providence of God, you know, didn't, didn't I, didn't we, you know, hear that, deal with that, you know, last month, the month before, and then as I began to, to think about that and, and dwell on that, I don't know if, if, if you guys suffer with this. I, I, I do suffer with this. Um, I know, like in my mind, right, that God is he's sovereign, right? And we understand that his providence flows out of, of his sovereignty, right? And I, and I know that. I know that intellectually. I know that intellectually. I, I believe that 100%. But here's, here's the problem that I at times struggle with. I, I assume you struggle with this as well, which I think is why it's all, all that important that we continue to examine, consider the providence of God, is that there's often a disconnect between what I intellectually know in my mind and what I truly believe and trust in my heart. I mean, I know that God is sovereign. I know that God is providential, right? Providence, right? Divine care. God in his sovereignty, cares for us, his children, personally and intimately and thoughtfully. And I know that, but, but do I always, do I always trust him in that? Do I always trust that? Do you always trust him in that? As we talked last time, we talked about providence, right? We talked about, you know, 
providence and, and provision through, through what we have and provision and, and what we don't have, right? Again, sometimes it's easy when, according to our ways, it seems, uh, things seem to be going well, right? Well, I, I have what I want. I have what I need. You know, praise God for his, his providence, right? I know it, and I believe it, and I trust it. And then when things don't always go how we, how we plan or how we, we expect, right? Makes it, it makes it more difficult at times, right? I don't want it to be the way. I'm sure you don't want it to be that way or that case. But it makes it difficult at times when we find ourselves confronted with the realities of life to proclaim God's sovereignty and God's providence. So I say that because I, I again, need this reminder today of God's providence. Okay? I want to make that connection between what I know to be 100% true, and then what I completely, in, in my heart, right, embrace and love and know to be true as well. I want to make that connection. I think God wants that for us, and I think that's why throughout this entire um, uh, narrative, the story of Ruth, right, we continue and will continue to see the sovereignty of God on display and the providence of God on display as well. This morning we're going to be covering, I think this is the first time ever I've, I've done this, but well, because it's a narrative, it tends to go a little bit faster. So we're going to be covering the entire um, uh, uh, chapter two of Ruth, and, and we're going to be covering over three, um, three major points. Um, if you would, again, follow me along, and, and Ruth, uh, follow with me, that is in Ruth chapter um, two, starting in verse one. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was, the cl- who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me? Since I am a foreigner, but Boaz answered her. <clears throat> but Boaz answered her. All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother, your native land, and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found a favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. 
And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted, and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an epath of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Now her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. So she also um, brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? Where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she, set, so she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. First thing we're going to look at this morning, the first uh, section, if you will, we're going to look at is um, verses 1 um, through 3, and I'm going to approach it a little bit differently than I think normally I'm, 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 you know, narrative or preaching through Old Testament narrative is, has been somewhat of a, I say a challenge for me just because it's, it's new to me. So I'm going to approach it a little bit differently and I'm going to go back and I'm going to read these first three verses and then I'm going to comment um, as I'm reading it on those three verses, which will help just help us understand kind of what's going on in this narrative a little bit better. And then after that, we're going to examine the, the first point. Um, it says, now Naomi had a relative of her husband's a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now, Boaz, understand, first of all, was kinsman, right, of Elimelech. Um, possibly a brother, right, and possibly, most likely, maybe uh, a cousin, okay, of uh, Elimelech's. And it says he was a worthy man of um, as a worthy man, what it's referring to is it's saying that Boaz, he was an honorable man who possessed some level of wealth. So here's this man, Boaz, right? Cousin, brother, close relative. We'll just say close relative. Close relative to Elimelech, which was, or who was, I guess, Naomi's husband who had passed away. It says in verse, uh, uh, verse 2, And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. Now, to glean, you, you may, some of you I know are familiar with this, you may not be, but to glean means to pick up. When they harvested the fields, um, they didn't have, you know, combines or mechanical harvesters, right, that we use today, right? They, they had the, the reapers, right? And they went through the field and they cut the stalks of grain. And as they cut the stalks of grain, they bundled them up into sheaves. And you've probably seen pictures or you've seen movies, uh, you know, uh, a field that's been harvested this way. And, and throughout the field, you'll see these kind of bundles of grain, you know, kind of stacked up, kind of teepee looking, stacked up throughout the field, okay? So um, Naomi 
um, Ruth, that is, had told Naomi that she was going to go out and she was going to glean the field. What she was going to do is after the reapers came in, okay, and they cut the grain, some of the grain would fall on the ground, right? Some of the stalks would be left. Maybe they missed some stalks, right? Maybe they didn't go, and we'll look at this momentarily. They didn't, they didn't actually go to the complete edges of the field as they reaped. They left some uh, grain around the edges of the corners of the field, okay? And so what Naomi, um, I'm sorry, what Ruth was going to do is she was going to go to the field, and she was going to glean. She was going to pick up, if you will, this leftover grain that the reapers had either dropped or that they had missed or that they had, that they had left. Now, this, this gleaning was a um, provision, if you will, by God. It was allowed under the Levitical law, um, uh, allowed by God, really a, a provision by God for the poor as, as a means to provide for them. If you would, turn with me to Leviticus, um, Levit- Leviticus chapter 19. We'll just briefly read and we'll look at this provision that God had um, instituted. Uh, Leviticus 19, verses um, 9 and 10. It says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings, right, the stuff left behind, after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. And it says, I am the Lord your God. So the poor, right? That was, that was Ruth, right? So this was a provision instituted by God, right, for uh, uh, situations uh, exactly as this. So Ruth says to Naomi, I'm going to go, I'm going to go glean. I'm going to go pick up. Now in verse 3 of uh, uh, Ruth chapter 2, it says, so she, Ruth, set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened. Now, now take note of this, all right? This is where we're going to examine our first point this morning. And, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. It was by chance. She just happened to stumble into the field. It was a coincidence. It was just, just by accident, if you will, or accident, if you will, that Ruth just happened to enter the field owned by, or the part of the field owned by Boaz to glean. First point we're going to examine or consider this morning is this. It's God's providential accident, right? Ruth, by accident, right, wandered into the field owned by Boaz. Now, we know that there are no accidents, right? Now, that doesn't mean that we don't, um, you know, uh, uh, that doesn't mean that we do everything, I should say, intentionally, okay? On our part, we could say, you know, we have accidents. Well, I didn't mean to, you know, I have my tire blow out and swerve into the ditch and hit that tree, right? I mean, that would be, uh, in our eyes, considered an accident, okay? But from a divine perspective, okay, there are no accidents. There are no 
by chances. There are no, well, it was, it, was, it was just by sheer luck that that happened, right? Oh, it was just coincidence that, that this occurred. You know, all of us are familiar with Romans 8.28, right? That God causes all things to work together for good, for those who love him, for those who, who are called according to his purposes, right? There are no... No accidents. No coincidences. Everything that happens, good or bad, and again, this doesn't make God the author of evil, right? But everything that happens, good or bad, happens according to God's sovereign, providential will. I know we looked at that last time, so I'm not going to go into details, but I want to remind you of that because we have this glaring example here in Ruth, where she accidentally, right, accidentally on purpose, according to God's plan, right, what, wandered into a field owned by Boaz to glean. Now, in, in, in the, uh, the case of Ruth, God actively willed and allowed Ruth to glean in Boaz's field. It didn't just so happen according to to the plan of God, right? The eyes of man, it did. God, no. It was a part of his plan, right? For Ruth, for Naomi, for Boaz, and ultimately for us. Now, God allowed, caused, if you will, this, this accident um, for the purpose of provision for Ruth, provision for Naomi. Right? He did that in part for food. Right? She happened to wander, right? God, God willed this, allowed this, right? For, for Ruth and Naomi, that they might be fed. And as we continued um, uh, through the remainder of chapter 2, and as we'll see as we progress through that, right? Boaz provides, ultimately God through Boaz, provides abundantly when it comes to food for Ruth and Naomi. Now, I want to I stop and I want to think about that just for a minute, okay? Because God willed Ruth to wander in this field, to glean, to meet Boaz, right? That one, and this is like probably the smallest morsel, if you will, of provision for them throughout this entire story, or maybe the least important part of provision for Ruth and Naomi throughout this entire story. But God did allow her to wander into that field to meet Boaz that Ruth and Naomi might be fed, and fed abundantly, as, as we'll get to later. Now, a couple weeks ago, as I was uh, beginning to study this passage, I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about God's provision for us um, for food. Now, I would suspect that most of us, you know, say grace before, right, um, before we eat. And I think sometimes we, we just, I mean, it's just what we do, you know. I mean, it's just kind of, it's just kind of routine, you know. We say what we say just because it's what we, we're, we're, we're used to saying. Not that we're not thankful and not that we're not grateful and not that we don't want God to use his food to, to nourish our bodies and then to use our bodies to glorify him. But it, but it becomes routine. But how many times have you, have we, do we, sit down and we think about 
this food that we're about to consume, the food that we're going to eat later on today, right? Multiple, multiple crockpots back there, multiple dishes, okay? You know, God, he purposefully, he intentionally, he, he thoughtfully has provided that food for us. It's, it's not an accident that you made whatever you made or you brought whatever you brought or they had a sale on whatever which enabled you to, to make whatever, okay? But, but something at times that seems simple and mundane is what we eat because we eat well. We eat well all the time. But the truth is whatever it is we consume, I mean, God has thoughtfully and intentionally and, and lovingly, right, provided for us. Right? That chili that I ate last night, right, my mom made, it was great. I'm appreciative to her for that. But you know, it was, it was God that, that thoughtfully, that intentionally, lovingly provided that food for my family that we might be nourished by it and that he might use us to glorify him. But how many times do we actually stop and do we sit down and we think about that? right? I don't. Not like I should. I suspect you don't either, like you should. You know the rain. I mean, this is incredible. Um, it really is, right? We've needed it, right? But how many of us this morning, last night, not just thanks God for the rain, but have, have seriously praised God and thanked him for thoughtfully, right, lovingly, caringly, given us rain. Just as he provided these things for Ruth and Naomi, he's providing for us. And I think at times we have just this level of expectation. It'll happen. And when it happens, it happens because it happens. It usually rains this time of year, right? Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, right? We expect it, right? Weather patterns, right? It's God, again, intentionally, providing for us. Now back to Ruth. God had provided for Ruth and Naomi again uh, a food, right, um, through this, this uh, uh, scenario, if you will. But he also would provide, will provide, as we'll see as we progress, not just simply through chapter 2, but as we progress through the remainder of the letter, right, also provide redemption for Ruth and Naomi. You know, a, 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 a one, a physical redemption for Ruth and Naomi from their impoverished lifestyle. But ultimately through Boaz, God will provide a spiritual redemption as well. And again, we'll look at that as we again progress um, over the next several months through Ruth. Now, not only um, has, has God actively willed this providential accident, if you will, these circumstances in the life of, of Ruth, right? We can look throughout the entire Old Testament and we can see these examples um, of God doing the exact same. Where it would be easy for us to say, oh, oh, good thing this happened or that happened, you know? Good thing that accidentally happened because if not, then, then we wouldn't have this or we wouldn't have that. I mean, we can consider it in the life of Joseph, right? Uh, not as in Mary and Joseph, but as in Joseph, son of, of Jacob, right? I mean, he's out with his brothers, and uh, what did they want to do? They wanted to kill him, right? His dreams, right? They didn't like it. They didn't like that he was the favored son of, of Jacob. So his, his brothers wanted to kill him. Good thing, right? 
right? Reuben happened to be there and said, no, don't kill him. We don't want his blood on our hands. Let's just throw him in to the well, right? Because what did Reuben plan on doing? He planned on coming back later that night and rescuing him, his brother. But I mean, if Reuben hadn't have been there, they would have just straight up killed Joseph. And if they would have killed Joseph, then what would have happened, right? He wouldn't have gone to Egypt, right? And when the famine hit, Israel wouldn't have been saved. And if Israel all would have perished in, in, in uh, uh, their lands, then well, who would Messiah have come through, right? So lucky for us, Reuben just happened be there. Yeah, but what if, what if Reuben would have been there and, and he wouldn't have made it back that night to save his brother and he would have died of exposure in the middle of the night? Oh, lucky for us, Judah was there to say, hey, hey, wait a minute. Let's just sell him to these Ishmaelites, these Midianite traders, right? So again, a lucky thing for us that, 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 that just, just happened to play out that way. Otherwise, I mean, Jacob, I'm sorry, uh, Joseph probably would have, would have died in the well, right? And we can do that throughout the whole story of Joseph. Well, what if, what if the Midianites wouldn't have sold him to Potiphar? I mean, what if, what if they would have gone like north instead of south? And then the famine would have hit and Israel would have died and where would Messiah come from? All the way, Potiphar's wife, what if she wouldn't have accused him of sexual impropriety? Then he wouldn't have gone to jail. And if he wouldn't have gone to jail, he wouldn't have met the, the baker and the, the uh, um, cupbearer. And the cupbearer couldn't have told Pharaoh of this guy, Joseph, who interpreted dreams, who wound up being the number two man in Egypt, who wound up saving Israel, right? Where God threw that, saving Israel. Again, so we can, we can do that with all those stories. Oh, a lucky thing, this happened. And, and lucky thing that this happened. Oh, good thing that that happened, right? No, we know in that story that God was what? God was actively allowing, again, not causing evil or sin, right? But allowing it to occur according to his sovereign providential plan for Joseph, for Israel, and ultimately for us. Genesis um, 50, 20. No, most of us are uh, familiar with this. We looked at it, uh, if not last time, time before last. But again, this is where um, Joseph proclaims, as for you, right, you meant evil against me, but God, what? God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph was proclaiming that all of this happened according to God's sovereign providential plan. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't coincidence, right? It wasn't happenstance, luck, that any and all of these things happened along the road to redemption, if you will, for Israel from this, this famine, okay? All of these things fell into place and occurred because of God's providential plan for them. You know, we could say the same thing about Moses, right? I mean, what if, what if Moses' parents wouldn't have sent Miriam down to the, to the river to put the baby in the basket? and they would have killed him, then who would have redeemed Israel from Egypt? And if they wouldn't have redeemed Israel from Egypt, then where would we be? So lucky for us, right, that that, that happened, right? Well, what if, what if um, Pharaoh's daughter hadn't have found Moses? What if it would have been like some uh, 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 palatial guard or something, and they would have cut his head off immediately? And where would we be, right? Lucky for us, right? 
Pharaoh's daughter just so happened to be bathing in the river. No, right? We know that, right? God was actively working to allow, to cause these circumstances to happen that, again, he might what? Redeem Israel, right? The nation of Israel, the people, right? From the hands of the Egyptians, right? That he might preserve Israel ultimately for the coming of his Messiah. Again, there is no, there are no accidents. All that happens is that are caused or allowed to happen according to God's sovereign providential plan. You know, I was thinking about God's providential accidents. And I was thinking about that in relation to how Randy and I met. Now, most of you may or may not, I guess actually most of you might not know the story, but this was uh, four years ago. Actually, it was probably about five years ago. And my wife and I were... Um, we were kind of looking for a new church in Ada. Really, we were just looking for some like-minded believers. Didn't think that there were any in Ada, right? And we were, you know, we were really struggling with this whole, where do we go? What do we do? You know, and, and I accidentally, right, on purpose, right, because God planned it, came across the website, uh, John MacArthur, um, uh, called the Shepherd's Fellowship. It was a website that his church, his ministry, their ministry, Grace to You, uh, puts together for, um, it was mainly for like ministers, pastors, like-minded individuals, okay? You could get on this website and just kind of look for like-minded individuals, maybe pastors of churches in your area, people to connect with. So my wife and I were desperate to find like-minded believers in this area and so I get on Shepherd's Fellowship. I look around. I don't find anything. Now, I'm not familiar with what all the other towns were around Ada at the time. I had not heard of this town or that town. Didn't see anyone or anything in Ada. So I just kind of figured, you know, oh, well, we're out of luck. But I did go ahead and, and I, I registered, you know, my name and information on there as well. About a year or so after that, I received an email. I actually want to read that to you. So about a year after, after um, my looking and registering on the Shepherd's Fellowship, I get this email. It says, Mr. Carper, which is kind of funny. makes me sound like an old man. But Mr. Carper, I'm writing to you from a little town down the road from Ada, from Stratford. I was excited to see someone from our area listed on the Shepherd's Fellowship. I've been a member for five years and have very few people near uh, um, our area who are interested in exegetical preaching, Reformed theology, and how to make it all practical in our evangelism. I was wondering if you would ever like to meet up over a cup of coffee or whatever you'd like, maybe at Starbucks, and share your testimony and talk about what God is doing in our little area. Also, have you attended the Shepherds Conference before? If not, let me tell you, brother, it will change your life. I have attended the last four years, and it has brought much joy, introspection, and challenge to my ministry and life. I highly encourage you to go. Unfortunately, it doesn't appear like I will make it this year, maybe next year. I will make it, though. Let me know if you would like to meet or visit via the phone. Um, here's a number you can contact me with. Um, signed, Pastor Randy Tyler. Lucky for me, I happened to stumble across the Shepherd's Fellowship website a year before getting an email from Randy. Lucky for him right? You know, he just happened to think about getting back on this website to see who was in the area, 
You know, really, I mean, if we wouldn't have accidentally, coincidentally met, this church probably wouldn't even be here today. Um, well, we know that's rubbish, right? We know that God personally, lovingly, caringly, right, worked all of this out, right, allowed, caused these things to happen, ultimately, again, for his glory, but also for our good, our good individually, right, and our good corporately as a church as well. You know, I know these seems like uh, these these examples seem like big kind of well. You're looking at scripture, right? We're talking about Moses and Joseph and Ruth, and we're talking about you know the the coming together and the planting of this church. But what about what about the small things in life, the small accidents, the small um, coincidences, right? Um, circumstances in life. Let's look at Psalm 37:23. Psalm 37:23 says the steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his ways. Also let's look at James 4:15. James 4:15. Instead you ought to say, what? If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Not just talking about the big things right? The big accidents, the big coincidences, um, the big circumstances in life. Well, yeah, obviously God's working through those. But what about the little things? The, the mundane things? What about the bad things, right? Everything, everything that happens, happens according to God's sovereign, providential plan for you, for me, for for us. And this is one of those, those areas where everything really means everything. Again, this doesn't, when bad things happen again, it doesn't make him the author of evil, the author of, of sin, right? But we know he uses that. Romans 8, 28, we looked at that. So when you wake up on Sunday morning and you're getting ready to walk out to church and you have a flat tire, right? I don't know why it went flat. I don't know how God's going to use that. Maybe it was just a reminder of me this morning that God is providential in all things. There are no accidents, right, from the divine perspective. He allowed it, right, and that he willed it to happen, right, for some reason, right, for my good and for his glory, right? We might not always see that. We might not always understand that, right, but we know it. We need to trust it. I want to I wanna trust it. Now let's look at um, back in uh, Ruth chapter 2. Verses 4 through 17. It says, And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. Now, real quick, this, this greeting from Boaz, okay? I want you to know it's not just a, a, um, a generic greeting. Like when we walk down the street and someone says, Hey, and you're like, Hey, right? And you keep going, right? This, this isn't just a generic greeting for Boaz, okay? I want you to understand that it is a reflection of what is in his heart, okay? Boaz is a, was an Old Testament saint, a believer, right? This, this greeting from Boaz is a reflection of what is in his heart. 
And he says, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. And then Boaz said to his young men who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And he saw Ruth gleaning in the field, right? Didn't know who she was. The servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. Now, now Boaz was familiar with Naomi's return to Bethlehem, Naomi's loss of her husband, her return to Bethlehem with her daughter-in-law who had lost her husband as well. However, Booth, uh, Boaz had never met Ruth, and so he sees this strange woman in his field, and he says, who is this? And they explain. And then in verse uh, 7, it says, she said, right, saying, uh, Ruth said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she had continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my, my daughter. Now this, my daughter, okay, um, obviously she's not his daughter, okay, which would be creepy if we, you know, as we continue into chapter 3 and chapter 4, right? It's, it's a statement, that just reflects the disparity in age, okay? Boaz was older than Ruth, right? Significantly older, I don't know, 15, 20 years, maybe. I mean, I don't know, but he was older than Ruth. And so this, this phrase, this statement, my daughter, is just a reflection of, of, him being his sen- of, of him being her, if you will, senior from an age perspective. And he says, um, do not glean or do not go to glean in another field or leave this one but keep close to my young women and let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. And have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Now I'm going to stop there as well because we see Boaz's like concern and care for Ruth um, increasing okay, throughout this chapter. And one of the amazing things, recall back when we first um, began Ruth, what did we say this, this relationship between Israel and Moab was like? Right? They were enemies. Right? I mean, they were like arch enemies, like Israel and Iran, okay? I mean, just, just imagine that, right? And so Boaz is telling this Moabite woman to, when you're thirsty, come drink out of our vessels. Again, I think that's in part significant because it reveals Boaz's heart to us. As we see his, his care and his concern grow for this Moabites throughout the chapter, throughout the narrative. Again, we see, really, we see the love of God being poured out through Boaz. In verse 10, it says, Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I'm a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Which again is amazing, right? We talked about when we first started Ruth, how, how Ruth, right, is in the story, she's a believer, right? Again, we don't know when that conversion took place. We kind of talked about that, okay? But, but Boaz, in, in verse um, 12, gives testimony 
of the fact that Ruth, it's evident in her life by her actions that Ruth is a believer as well. Then, then she said, verse 13, I found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. She ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, let her glean even among the sheaves. I mean, he's taken it way beyond what the Levitical law allowed, right? Let her glean among the sheaves. And do not reproach her, but also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out, she threshed, right? She separated the grain from the stalks, from the chaff, okay? She beat it out, what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah, if you will, of barley, it was a half to two-thirds of a bushel. It was 30 to 50 pounds of barley. This was enough barley to feed Ruth and Naomi for, for a month, at least from a, a barley ration perspective. Now, the second point that I want to look at, or the second item that I, I want to take from this section, from verses 4 through 17, is this. It's God's providential use of people. God's provision through Boaz to Ruth and Naomi in part was food, right? God was using Boaz to provide this food for Ruth and Naomi. It was God doing it. I want to make sure we, we give God the credit. God was using him to provide food. Right? God was using Boaz to provide physical protection for Ruth as she was gleaning, as she was working in that field. Thinking back to those examples that we talked about earlier um, with Jacob, or Joseph, sorry, right? It was God using these people. God used Reuben to say, don't kill him, just throw him in the well, all right? Now, Judah didn't know Reuben had planned on coming back and getting him, right? So Judah says, no, 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 let's sell him because he was afraid he was going to die in the well. So God was using Judah to say, let's sell him. God used the Midianites to what? To sell Joseph to Potiphar. God used Potiphar's wife to accuse Joseph that Joseph might be thrown in jail, that he might meet the cupbearer that he might meet Pharaoh, right? So God was using these people to work according to his plan, his purposes. The same for Moses, right? God, and when you think about it, the slaughtering of the males in Egypt, evil, I mean, absolute wickedness, right? But God used that, right? used bad, evil sin that he didn't author, used that for good. And the good was to rescue this one male 
from all of those males that were being slaughtered, rescue this one male, Moses, that would lead God's people out of Egypt, just as God used Pharaoh's daughter to rescue Moses. Who rescued Moses? Yeah, God did, right? It wasn't Pharaoh's daughter. God used Pharaoh's daughter to rescue Moses. Think of God's provision of Randy and I to eye to him. You know, the point at which we met, I mean, in God's timing, is, is, it's perfect. It's always perfect, right? I, I needed Randy. Now, I was looking a year before. We were looking, my wife and I, we were looking a year before, right? Desperate thinking, we need something now, right? But a year after that, when God connected the two of us, right, it was at the right time because I needed him and he needed me. And both of us, again, how, how God worked in the story of this church, okay, right, which directly affects you. Both of us had this deep desire to see a church planted, to plant a church, right, a Reformed Baptist church in Ada. And the funny thing is, right, coincidentally, right, accidentally, right, we had been friends for like six months before either one of us had ever even discussed, right, um, this desire. And I, I can remember the night that Randy came over to the house. He was like, hey, I need to talk to you. Of course, I'm thinking, oh, no. I said something or I did something I shouldn't have. He's, he's upset with me. And I was like terrified, right? He's coming over and, and about to drop the hammer. And that's what I'm thinking. You know, my wife even left the house and I'm, you know, I'm all worried about it. And uh, he comes up. I mean, I remember, you might not remember. I remember vividly. All right. And uh, so he starts telling me, because my wife and I had planned on leaving the church we were at in Ada, and we were going to go to Stratford, where Randy was, was, was uh, pastoring. And we really didn't want to go to Stratford. I mean, our heart was in Ada, right? But there was nothing in Ada. And so we were going to go. And so he comes over to the house, and he's talking about how, all right, so there's something I need to kind of talk to you about. And I don't know how this is going to affect you since you're planning on moving to Stratford. And he starts telling me how God has placed this desire in his heart to plant a Reformed Baptist church in Ada. And I just remember thinking, get out, you know, because that's, that's my desire as well. This was God providentially working to, to give me the, uh, when I first met, met him, I had felt like, um, from a ministry perspective, I had felt like a Timothy or a Titus who needed a Paul. This was God working to give me that pastor mentor that I needed. God working to give Randy a co-laborer that, that he needed, that God might, might plant this church here. And God's provision for us, God's provision for you. What about God's provision of you to others, though, and others to you? Again, we're looking at big things here, right? Ruth, Boaz, Right? Naomi, Moses, Joseph, planning a church. Right? Let's look at Acts. Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. Now, the full number of those who had believed with one heart and soul, no one said that any um, of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. 
With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses um, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. It was distributed to each as they had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, of course, I think that many occults were probably or have probably been formed as a result of this um, hippie commune Christian stuff. We all need to just move to the Morrison Ranch and sell everything and live in this this weird thing where th- that's not what is being advocated um, and acts for here. Okay, what it is, it's an example of the body of Christ serving one another as there have been needs or as there were needs within the body of Christ. So you don't have to, I mean, the command's not to sell your stuff. I'm not saying that God might not require that. I mean, he does at times, right? Will co- require us to serve others in the body in extraordinary ways, right? But this is an example, the body of Christ serving one another. First right? Peter 4.10. Well, I'm going to actually start in 8. So First Peter, let's look at, uh, starting in verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins, showing hospitality, serving one another. Hospitality wasn't just like welcome, right? And this was like deep, like intimate serving, letting people come into your home and to stay with you as there was need, okay? Showing hospitality, serving one another, giving of yourself, your home, your life completely to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it, what? To serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So we're to use our gifts to serve one another. God's providential use of people. Let's go to Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So again, we have the body being motivated, right, as a result of Christ, what he has done for us, and saving us, being motivated by that to do what? To serve one another. Let's look at Acts 20. Verse 35. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he him said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. All of us should desire to serve one another. Okay? All of us should 
desire to give. But in order to serve, but in order to give, in order for you to serve, okay, in order for you to give, what must there be? There must be someone to what receive it. See, here's the thing, and I think this is a, a common struggle for all of us. I know it is, okay? Most of us want to serve, right? We want to help. We want to do what we can do, right? And it's not that we want to serve, I mean, each other. I mean, we do, right? And, and we should, but ultimately, it's, it's Christ whom we're serving. I said, I, we went to this conference um, this past week, and I, was, I, I felt kind of creepy, I'll be honest, but I, I wanted to get uh, uh, Pastor MacArthur's, uh, to sign a book for me, right? He was, Justin made me feel better about doing it, so I, I blame Justin. But, but he was signing autographs for books, you know, uh, so I was like, okay, I want to get him to, to sign this book for me. And um, I was thinking, i got to say something to him. I mean, this is, this is you know, like the John MacArthur. I don't want to just please sign this and then walk away. I mean, I, I want to say something, you know. And so I'm in line for like 45 minutes, and I'm, and I'm thinking, I want to, I want to say something. I don't want to sound stupid, you know. And so um, I, I walked up to him, and I just looked at him, and I said, I'm conflicted. And he kind of looked at me. I said, I'm conflicted. I said, here's the deal. I want to thank you, right, um, because, because your ministry has... Um, impacted my life personally in profound ways, as, as well as you know most could say out here, right? But ultimately, it's God who did that. It's, it's not you. And so, really, I just want to thank. I want to thank God. And he said, "Yeah, thank, thank God." The thing is, right? John MacArthur, John MacArthur, Pastor MacArthur, Pastor Lawson, right? And they were serving us at this conference, but they weren't serving us. They were they were serving Christ. And, and in serving us, they were serving Christ. In serving Christ, they, they were serving us. So that's the thing. Most of us want to serve. We should. If you're born again, you should, you should want to serve. You should desire to serve where God leads, where God enables. Okay, so that's the good part, right? But I think here's the problem that most of us have. Most of us struggle when it comes not to serving, but when it comes to being served. Not that we should desire that, like, I'm going to go to church today and I'm going to see how everyone can do for me. Obviously not what I'm talking about. But as, as we have needs in our lives, right, the body should step up. The body is going to step up and serve us. I think the problem is most of us, because of pride, say, "Oh no, it's okay. It's right. No, no. Oh, I know. Well, thank you, but I'm, I'm okay. I don't, I don't need, I don't need your help, even though we do. You see, to serve someone means that someone has to be served, and sometimes that someone being served needs." to be us. It needs to be you. We have a neighbor, and uh, he needed help with something. I don't even remember what it was. It was obvious uh, he needed help with something. Professes to be a Christian. I went over to his house, and I said, can I, can I help you do this? He said, I've used this on Randy, too, I think. And he said, 
He said, no, 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 it's, it's okay. He said, I've got it. I, I really, I, I don't, I mean, it's, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to be a burden. I don't want to put you out. I don't want to whatever. <laughs> and I looked at him and I said, you know, um, I said, it is a blessing to serve others, isn't it? He was like, oh yeah, yeah, it's a great blessing to serve others. I mean, we're, we're commanded to serve others by Christ, right? He's like, absolutely, we are, and, and it's a blessing, and I, and I like to serve others, and, and we should like to serve others. And I looked at him, and I said, you know what you're doing by telling me no? I said, you're robbing me of that. I said, I want to serve Christ by serving you, and it is a blessing. And I enjoy that blessing of serving him by by serving you. And what you're seeking to do is to rob me of that. It's funny, ever since then, he's never said, no, no, it's okay, I've got it, I've got it. But, but that's the thing, folks, right? We should all desire to, be, to, to serve, not to be served. We should all desire to serve others. And yet there are times in our lives when we're going to need to be served. So I go back to Ruth chapter 2, verse um, 18. Speaking of uh, Ruth here, it says in verse 18, and she took it up, talking about the, the grain that she had gleaned, right, this, this two-thirds bushel or so. She took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied, which is just, I mean, again, just a testimony of, of Ruth's, I believe, again, Ruth's salvation. She ate, and she was satisfied, and what was left, she bundled it up. She carried it around with her throughout the remainder of the day so she could give it to Naomi to eat. Um, in verse 19, it says, And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And let's stop there for a second. What do we see in Naomi here? Right. Let's go back to... Um, Chapter 1, um, verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Remember, Naomi had thought she was being punished by God. Right? We see here in chapter 2, verse 20, we see a change in Naomi's attitude, don't we? Again, she says, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or dead. Naomi is praising God for the provision that has come, that is coming now through Boaz. So God is beginning to work and to stir in the heart of Naomi. 
says, Naomi also said to her, this man is a close relative of ours. It's one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she, so she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. The barley and wheat harvests were back-to-back, and they lasted from April to June. So Boaz didn't just provide this one day, but he was going to provide again, from a physical food perspective, for Ruth and Naomi now for several months to come. Actually, they probably would have gleaned enough food within this time frame, not only to set themselves up for the year, but also to have plenty extra to, to, to sell or do whatever they need to do with. Now, let's go back, though, to verse, um, verse 20. And we're just going to look at the last part, and this is the last point we're going to consider today, okay? It says this, And Naomi also said to her, the man regarding Boaz. The man is a close relative of ours, right? A kinsman. He's one of our redeemers. Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. So the third point is this. It's God's providential redeemer. See, God's provision of Boaz to Ruth and Naomi as a redeemer. Now, God, so far in the story, is using Boaz um, uh, from a physical, redemptive perspective. They're poor. They have nothing. He's providing food for them, protection for Ruth as she works in his field. Now, as we progress through the narrative of the next seven months, we're going to see how Boaz, how this, this picture of him as a physical redeemer, Okay, for Ruth and Naomi, and we're going to see how that comes into play more. Okay, I don't want to I don't want to skip ahead to that, but what I do want to focus on is this word redeemer. Okay, the word goel, the the idea, the concept of a kinsman redeemer. This is a provision, right, that God instituted in Leviticus, and we'll go back to Leviticus 25, 25. Leviticus 25, 25 says this, if your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer, Goel, shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. See, the kinsman redeemer was a one rich benefactor, a relative, a close relative or person who frees the debtor by paying the ransom price. See, God made a provision for the poor person who was forced to sell property or to sell self into slavery. And this provision provided that one's nearest of kin could step in and buy back, to redeem, to buy back what his relative was forced to sell. And this, of course, was really a responsibility for the nearest of kin with the means to do so. It wasn't so much an option as much as it was an expectation from God. If, if you 
were a kinsman redeemer, if you could do what was required of you to do as a close relative to this or for this individual over here, it was an expectation, right, levied upon you by God to do this. Now, if a person was forced into slavery, his kinsman redeemer was to purchase his freedom. If a person was in overwhelming debt, his kinsman redeemer was to step in and satisfy the debt. If a person was forced to sell his belongings, his kinsman redeemer was to buy back that which was sold. If one was killed by another, his kinsman redeemer was to act as avenger in pursuit of the killer. We see that in Numbers 35. Numbers 35, starting in verse 12. The cities shall be for you a refuge from the avenger, that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation for judgment. And the cities that you give shall be your six cities of refuge. You shall give three cities beyond the Jordan and three cities in the land of Canaan to be cities of refuge. These six cities shall be for the refuge for the people of Israel and for the stranger, for the sojourner among them, that anyone who kills any person without intent may flee there. But if he struck him down with an iron object so that he died, he is a murderer. And the murderer shall be put to death. And if he struck him down with a stone tool that could cause death and he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. Or if he struck him down with a wooden tool that could cause death and he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. The avenger of blood shall himself put the murderer to death. When he meets him, he shall put him to death. And if he pushed him out of hatred or hurled something at him, lying in wait so that he died, or in enmity struck him down with his hand so that he died, then he who struck the blow shall be put to death. He is a murderer. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. But if he pushed him suddenly without enmity or hurled anything on him without lying in wait or used a stone that could cause death, and without seeing him dropped it on him so that he died, though he was not his enemy and did not seek his harm, then the congregation shall judge between the manslayer and the avenger of blood in accordance with these rules. And the congregation shall rescue the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood, and the congregation shall restore him to his city of refuge to which he has fled, and he shall live in it until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. But if the manslayer shall at any time go beyond the boundaries of his city of refuge to which he fled, and the avenger of blood finds him outside the boundaries of his city of refuge, and the avenger of blood kills the manslayer, he shall not be guilty of blood. For he must remain in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest, but after the death of the high priest, the manslayer may return to the land of his possession. And these things shall be for a statute and rule for you throughout your generation and all your dwelling places. If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses, but no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness." Moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. And you shall accept no ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge, that he may return to dwell in the land before the death of the high priest. You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land, and no atonement can be made for the land except for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. 
You shall not defile the land in which you live in the midst of which I dwell, for I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. Okay, so what that passage is about is this, right? The manslayer, the murderer, and the avenger of blood. Okay? If one was killed by another, if Naomi had been in Israel and a man had murdered Elimelech, then Naomi's nearest of kin, her kinsman redeemer, right, would be responsible to kill the individual that killed Elimelech, the manslayer, the murderer, and the avenger of blood, the kinsman redeemer. Now, if one died without an heir, excuse me, a kinsman redeemer, would marry the widow and rear a son to hand down the family name. We see this in Deuteronomy chapter 25. 25 verse 5 says, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife, perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. Also Genesis 38.8. Genesis 38, 8 says, Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Naomi said to Ruth, Boaz is one of our kinsmen redeemers. He's one who could redeem us as his family from these scenarios that I just read to you. Right? Namely, what? The last point, right? If one died without an heir, a kinsman redeemer would marry the widow, rear a son to hand down the family name. Right. Now, the requirements for a kinsman to be or to redeem, right? One, he must be near of kin. Go back to Leviticus 48. I'm sorry, Leviticus um, 25, verse 48. It says this, Then after he is sold, he may be redeemed, and one of his brothers may redeem him. Referring to nearest of kin, close relative. The kinsman redeemer or the kinsman must be able to redeem. So he must be a close relative, and he must be able to redeem. We actually see that in Ruth chapter 4. Ruth 4, verses 4 through 6. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, um, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, we'll actually look at that more as we, as we, uh, or when we get into chapter 4, but understand this from that passage, right? A kinsman must be able to redeem in order to redeem. So if a kinsman, right, 
doesn't have the means to buy back whatever it is, then that kinsman is not and cannot be a kinsman redeemer. So he must be near of kin. He must be able to redeem. He must be willing to redeem. The final, requirement for, the final requirement for redemption is that redemption was complete when the price was fully paid. Again, we'll go back to Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 25, verse 27. Let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it and then return to his property. The, tra- the transaction, the redemption, would be complete when the price was completely paid. Now, here's the thing. God's going to use, and we're going to see this as we progress through Ruth, God's going to use Boaz okay, as the, he is a, at this point in the narrative, right? He is a, kinsman redeemer okay god's going to use boaz as the kinsman redeemer for ruth and for naomi he's going to physically redeem them and then physically redeem them he's going to physically restore them so god's provision to ruth and naomi was Boaz a kinsman redeemer? Okay. We, like Ruth and Naomi, have a kinsman redeemer as well. And that kinsman redeemer is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our kinsman Redeemer. Jesus is our nearest of kin. We said a kinsman redeemer must be what? Must be near of kin. Well, Jesus, through the incarnation, is our nearest of kin. Let's look at Romans. Romans chapter 8. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own Son, what? In the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So Jesus, through the incarnation our nearest of kin. He was made like us in his humanity, though perfect, that he may redeem us. Said that a kinsman, uh, we said that a kinsman redeemer must be able to sin, right? Jesus, and Jesus alone, has the power to redeem humanity, mankind, people, me, you, us from sin. Jesus alone has that power. And we see that in Acts 4.12. Acts 4.12 says, And there is salvation and no one else, for there is no other name under heaven 
given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus alone has the power to redeem sinful man from the righteous wrath of God. Also said the kinsman redeemer must be willing to redeem. And Jesus was willing to redeem. He willingly gave himself as a sacrificial, vicarious, and obedient payment to effect the release of slaves, captives in bondage. Let's go to Titus. Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all peoples, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who willingly gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Not only must the Redeemer be willing to redeem, but we also said redemption was complete when the price was completely paid. John chapter 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch, held it to his mouth, and when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. From the cross, in his last breath, Jesus proclaimed the telestai, which means paid in full. It doesn't mean, oh, it's finished, as in, my life is finished. I'm dead now. It doesn't mean it's finished. That is, this, this um, crucifixion is, is over. But it actually means paid in full. Okay? In the first century, when a debtor paid his debt off on the note or the document or whatever it was, they would stamp on it, actually probably write on it, to tell us die which means paid in full. What was paid in full? The price for your redemption. The price for my redemption. Right? God's righteous wrath that you deserve. God's righteous wrath that I deserve was paid in full at the cross. Jesus didn't merely make salvation possible. He proclaims here that he accomplished it. To tell us die. Paid in full. So here's the question. Is Jesus your kinsman redeemer? Is he your kinsman redeemer? If you are a Christian the answer is absolutely yes. He is my kinsman redeemer. If you can't answer that question, 
Or you don't know. Well, he's not. No, I'm not sure. I don't know. Then there's only one response. And that response is to repent, turn from sin, and turning from sin, you what? You turn to Christ in faith, believe, repent, and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved and proclaim today that Jesus is your kinsman redeemer. Let's pray. Father, you are you are sovereignly providential. Father, I thank you for your divine care for us. Thank you for your love for us. Lord, I praise you that in the midst of joy and in the midst of sorrow, we can hope in you and we can trust in you because we know that you cause all things to work together for your glory and for our good. God, you have provided for us in innumerable ways, ways that we constantly take for granted. God, this air that we are breathing right now has been provided by you for us. It's not ours, it's yours. I don't know if I've ever thanked you for that. But I thank you, Lord, for the air we breathe, for the food we eat, for the clothes we have, for this building that we gather together and we worship you in. I thank you for your body, Jesus, your, your people, and the opportunity to serve one another and even to be served by one another. Lord, more than anything, I thank you for your provision of Redeemer. God, you sent your Son to redeem for yourself a people. Us. Jesus, you did for us what we never could have done for ourselves paid the price that we owed we could never pay and you paid it and you satisfied the debt that we never could so Jesus I praise you and I thank you my redeemer our redeemer Jesus I want to see your name exalted proclaimed glorified above all else. And I ask that you would do that, that you would continue to do that.